0: Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and welcome to Tell Me. Today, I spoke with Holly Mitchell. Supervisor Mitchell has 30 years in public service. I became aware of her through Oprah Magazine when she was named the 2020 visionary for her work as a former state senator in making California the first state in the nation to pass the historic anti-discrimination law, the Crown Act. We had a great conversation about what a life in local politics looks like, what a career in public service looks like. She's just a force, and I loved having the time with her today, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We recorded this episode a few months back, and we discussed an issue that the supervisor was dealing with in Carson, where a warehouse fire had caused chemicals to leak into the Dominguez Canal and was causing a foul odor all throughout Carson. Since we recorded, a lawsuit has been filed against the property owners to hold them accountable for their unlawful business practices.
1: How are you, I am so excited to have the opportunity to share space with you. Oh, my goodness, thank you so much. I'm so happy you agreed to do this. I'm sure you're so busy. No, this is important conversations to have. Thank
0: you, of course. I think that we have to turn that lens on local politics because these young women who are looking for a lane to get into. This is a great lane. I don't know where you could learn greater lessons than in local politics. I agree. I really enjoy talking to female local politicians because I do think it's a wonderful place to start for so many young women who don't exactly know what they want to do. It's a great place to sort of start. So Holly, can you walk me through, like, what does your day today look like? What are you going to do today?
1: Well, again, thank you for the opportunity. And what's so amazing about this job I have never had two days that were anywhere close to being alike. A. B, when I wake up in the morning and kind of look at my calendar and mentally go through my day, it never turns out the way I anticipated based on reviewing it. Things come up. I'm in the middle right now of grappling with a environmental crisis in the city of Carson. I represent the second supervisorial district of the LA County Board of Supervisors. I am responsible for 2 million of L.A. County's 10 million residents. The 2 million people I have the honor of representing live in communities as far south as Carson, as far north as East Hollywood, as far east as downtown Skid Row community, as far west as Culver City. So if you know L.A., you can only imagine the diversity of those geographic areas. So a week ago Monday, Residents of Carson awakened to a putrid smell in the air. They couldn't figure out where it's coming from. It took several days for a fire hazmat, Department of Public Works, Air Quality Management District, all governmental entities that are responsible for making sure that we stay safe in our communities, trying to figure it out. There's something called the Dominguez Channel that multiple levels of government are responsible for. Get this, the federal government is responsible for the floor of this channel. Which is natural. The county is responsible for the walls of the channel, which are cement. There is some kind of, we think, natural algae buildup that because of the drought, there's not enough water in the channel to flush it. And this natural algae buildup has created hydrogen sulfide, which, if you remember, chemistry class, smells like rotten eggs, to the point where, you know, thousands of residents are nauseous sick headaches. So we've been trying to figure that out now for 10 days. The source, who's responsible, how to fix it, how to help people feel safe in their homes. So two weeks ago, if you'd asked me what my day was like, I wouldn't have been talking to you about the Dominguez Channel and hydrogen sulfide. That's my reality today. There was some negative press yesterday about a locally elected official. Lots of interest in that because it's kind of a sensationalized, tantalizing story with corruption. Mm -hmm. That will, even though it doesn't involve me, That will impact my day because folks want to talk about it, want to get my opinion. Then I have kind of the regular course of work in terms of managing the county and reviewing department head performance appraisals. And so that gives you a snapshot of the diversity of things that confront you as a policymaker.
0: Wow. Yeah. And currently the L.A. County Board of Supervisors is an all-female team, correct? five women. Yes. And your election to that board completed that. Correct. So do you feel like you have a lot of support in these day to day or do you all sort of handle different districts and areas?
1: Yeah. Very, very good question. We all handle different districts. And so I have a colleague who represents, you know, the far north Lancaster, Palmdale, Captain Barker. she's dealing with, you know, issues around illegal cannabis growing and water theft in her community. The board chair, Hilda Solis, represents District 1. She's further east. So we all, based on the geographic area we represent, have different kind of priorities. And yet we come together on Tuesdays, this board day, to talk about the budget, to talk about how we're going to allocate the American Rescue Plan dollars, to talk about how we're going to rebuild L.A. County back better with the lens of equity. You know, acknowledging that there were some communities that were disproportionately hit by COVID either the public health pandemic or the economic pandemic and so we come together to engage in policy making discussions and budget decisions for the county as a whole
0: so before the LA county board of supervisors you spent time as a state senator california and rose to fame and prominence based on you being able to get the crown act passed in the state of california thank you so much for that yes, congratulations yes. thank you you know as a white woman i did not know anything about hair discrimination and shame on me because I do have black children. And I first saw a beautiful girl named Maya Penn on social media. She's a Gen Z environmental activist. And I saw her Instagram and I started looking into the Crown Act. And I instantly felt, one, so grateful that it exists and that people like you have been championing it. But, you know, I felt real shame that I didn't know about it. And so it's because of the work that people do to educate us and inform us. This work, if we look into it, I really feel we all have a responsibility to look into these things, to talk about the work that you do so that everybody can understand what this is because white women just don't deal with this. White men don't deal with this.
1: There's no other group of people who are victims of a dress code at school or a dress code at work that tells you how to wear your hair. I mean, it's really quite compelling. It's all Black people
0: with ethnic hairstyles. Mm-hmm. How many states now is it in?
1: I think we're up to nine states. A bill has passed the House of Representatives. Lots of local government. I got a text just Monday from a colleague, Commissioner Rodney Ellis, who's a county supervisor in Houston, and they passed at the county level. And so several you know, school districts, local government have done it. I, I don't have that number, but nine states. And there are 20 additional states with bills going through the hopper currently.
0: So is it fair to say if it passes at the state level, is it then more challenging to enforce at the local level? When you try to pass an anti-discrimination law in Texas, I would think there's all kinds of work that needs to be done on the micro level in individual schools.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's the political strategy. Senator Tony Rose, a colleague of mine who's in the Texas State Senate, you know, called me a year or so ago. So we're going to try to get it through. But, you know, our governor's not open to it. Leadership's not open to it. And so, you know, much like the Equal Rights Amendment, where it can start at the state level and build momentum. I mean, that's been our strategy with the Crown Act and the Crown Coalition that's really helping to move this agenda across the country. California. I had a receptive governor who was willing to be the first to sign the bill. And so we got it through in record time. I introduced it in January. Governor Newsom signed it July 3rd of that year. And that was an important first step for us to then show other states they could do it, for us to test language. You know, when we first introduced it, we were focused on Equal Employment and Housing Department. And then I had my late director, Bridget, who said, you know, Senator at the time, if we only focus on the employment code, the young man, the young wrestler we saw in New Jersey that put that went viral, whose locks were viciously cut off because the referee said he couldn't wrestle in the tournament with locks, you know, we wouldn't have covered him. In effect, we would protect teachers at schools, but not kids. I was like, you're right, Bridget. So we went back and added the education code. So, you know, going through this process, I think the bill gets stronger and better every time. But it really is a strategy, you know, until the federal government addresses it so it becomes the law of the land for the entire country. We've got this state by state strategy, building momentum in those states that aren't able to get it done at the local level. I think the city of New Orleans has passed it. And so if enough cities in a state pass it, then it puts pressure on the state level. So, you know, all politics are local. You know, that old adage is really true. And some politics must start local in order to really send the signal that it's a movement. And this really is a natural here movement. It is an acknowledgement that hair is a race-based trait and therefore should be protected under the law, just like my gender is, sexual orientation, age, all of the above. We've come a long way in acknowledging that a Eurocentric standard of professionalism and beauty is an antiquated racist theory that we're not going to take it anymore. You know, I wear my hair locked. I've been in elected office, first ran in 2010. I've been locked for 17 years. And so I was clear when I first ran for office that people were going to vote for me based on what's inside my head, not how I choose as a grown-ass woman, pardon me, to wear my hair. And not a single fellow legislator ever said, you know, I'm not going to vote for that Mitchell bill. I'm not going to vote for that Mitchell budget since I chaired the Senate Budget Committee because Holly chooses to wear dreadlocks. It has nothing to do with my work performance. And I happen to think I looked and continue to look as professional every day with my locks as any of my colleagues. And so I was proud to be able to carry the bill because I was a living example of what we were talking about. I stood on the Senate floor and said, this is going to be a teachable moment. And we got it done.
0: And I am so glad you did. It is really such important work. Because it is, to me, crazy, the fact that Black women, Black men have to worry about being discriminated against because of their hairstyle.
1: And there are countless court cases, Supreme Court cases, as recent as 2010. Chastity, who was offered a job in a call center, had a conditional offer on the table, went in to meet with HR, HR locks, asked for about it, and rescinded the job offer because of her hair for a job in a call center.
0: I don't even know what to say to that. You know, what do you say? I mean, there is no justification for judging someone based on their hairstyle. It's just pure ignorance, pure fear of what you don't know. And I would just urge everybody, if you're not familiar with the Crown Act, and you're not familiar with the reality of discrimination based on a hairstyle. So you said there's nine states left?
1: No, nine states have passed the Crown
0: Act. Only nine states. Only nine states. Can I slap my hand on the table? Yes. Can I get upset right now? Only nine states have passed. So the other, however many, I can't even add right now. I'm so mad. So- (laughs) people not being discriminated against due to the style of their hair is not important to these people running their states? It's not important that people are treated like human beings?
1: So, you know, it's interesting. You know, discussions around race and bias, implicit and explicit, are important conversations for us to have. And so, you know, I think for me, the more compelling story, the more we talk about the Crown Act over the years, are the conversations that I've had with legislators In states where they've not been able to get it through, in states where they can't get it set for a committee, where the leadership in both houses won't allow them to actually even hear the bill, where governors have sent signals, if you send it to me, I won't sign it. Those are the compelling stories and the questions why. I got to tell you, Gavin and I did social media and media. We were on like a in America the day before, I think, the bill signed. He posted it on his social media and the haters came out of everywhere. You know, you're ridiculous. This is classic California politics. We have homelessness. We have, you know, water shortage and drought. We have fires at the time. That's what you should be focusing on. And my point was, don't get it twisted. I am. I do all of the above and more. And Gavin, to his credit, when we had the bill signing ceremony, he stood there. It was his first official bill signing ceremony. It was his first year as governor, surrounded by Black women. He looked at me and said, you know, people will trivialize this and say, it's just hair, change it, you know, whatever. He said, but it's not that. He said, this is a form of discrimination. Let's call it what it is. And I see you. And it hit me like ice water because I knew that he did see me and he fundamentally understand what was at the root of the problem. The other issue is, as I talk to Black women, it's about choice. It's not about judgment toward women who still choose to straighten their hair. The issue is we were the only group of people who structurally, as we talk about structural racism, who were structurally being put out. You know, I read the letters parents sent me for their daughters who were suspended and sent home from school because mamas chose to send them to school with their hair and braids. And the letter said, and the policy they were violating was that their hair was a distraction to others. Are you kidding me? So you are suspending my Black daughter or son, or in the case of the young man who was a top flight student in this high school, had locks in class but wasn't going to be allowed to graduate with his class because of the length of his locks. And they wanted some uniform appearance for the graduates in their cap and gown. The parents were clear that they would be able to pull his locks back and his mortarboard board would fit, but it was some policy. So he could attend school, but they weren't gonna let him graduate in his class. That's the young man that got to go to the Academy Awards when the brother won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film About Natural Hair. And so, you know, these policies are so outrageous. Way before the Crown Act, I was reading these articles and seeing news reports of these young girls being sent home. So I started kind of like my own campaign where I would write them a letter and send them my official legislative headshot, you know, a classic. Politician, I'm flanked by flags in a suit. You know, the classic photo that hangs in state capitals. Because my point was to show them, I am a legislative leader in the state that is the fifth largest economy in the world. I chair the budget committee. i send them pictures of me at the dais with the gavel, the horseshoe surrounded by budget committee members making decisions about the finances for the fifth largest economy in the world with my locks to show them that I know your school is giving you the impression that you're not good enough. And I am here to tell you that you are.
0: I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I mean, I'm always at a loss for words over discrimination. Mm -hmm.
1: As you said, it's fear, it's ignorance. You know, Black hair connotes power. You know, when we were enslaved, you know, as Black women, we can do these head wraps. And, you know, that came about because as slaves, we were told to cover our hair. The iconic image of Angela Davis, fist in the air, her big natural. In the 60s, the natural was a symbol of reclaiming our heritage and power. And so I think it is an issue of ignorance and fear. And by us choosing to not conform to this notion of straight hair is the norm, it really sends a signal about who I am as a woman and my sense of personal agency. And I think that's what makes people uncomfortable. And so, you know, CROWN is an acronym. It's also, you know, our CROWN or wear my CROWN, but it stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. And that's all we're trying to do.
0: All you're trying to do is live, just live your life. Mm
1: -hmm. The way my hair naturally grows out of my head.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So do you feel like you get more done now than when you were a senator? Was the Senate just harder to be heard and harder to get things done? Do you feel more effective and more heard at the local level?
1: Not necessarily. It's just different work. You know, I was first elected to the Assembly in 2010. I was there three years. I then won a special election in 2013 to go to the Senate. The legislature is a bicameral house. An assembly with 80 members. A Senate with 40 for a combined state legislature of 120. So arguably, one would think, oh, I maybe felt more heard in the Senate. It's a smaller house. I was the only Black woman serving in the Senate at the time. I was the fourth Black woman since statehood to serve in the California State Senate. I carry that responsibility with pride, but also realize that it is indicative of, you know, electoral politics, and it reflects how much more work we have to do in terms of really experiencing representative government. The work wasn't easier. It was just different work. As a state policymaker, it was more of a 10,000 foot kind of level policymaking focus. Again, affecting laws or budgets that impact a state of 40 million. Now, at the county level, it's just a little more focused in terms of the nature of the work we're done, but significant work. i passed a motion that will, in effect, start LA County down the planning process to stop oil drilling as we know it in LA County. That's important. I represent the Inglewood oil fields, the largest urban oil field in the nation. If you fly into LAX and you can look out of the plane very close to LAX, that's the Inglewood oil fields. So I represent communities that have oil fields literally in their backyard. We've been able to really put a lens of equity on our budgeting process. That's important. So it's not easier. I don't necessarily feel more heard. It's just different. It's different. It's 10,000 foot versus You know, local is just a little closer to the ground and to where people see it and feel it. You know, the county government is responsible. There are 36 departments. And so what is the county responsible for? Public health. That was Dr. Barbara Ferrer and Dr. Montu Davis, the county's public health officers, who've made the decisions for L.A. County about where we wear masks, mandatory vaccinations. So that's the county level. Department of Mental Health, county level. The sheriff, probation, the county jail. County public health, county hospitals, Department of Family Services, Child Welfare Services, foster care. Those are all issues that fall at the county level. I think really this is where I'm supposed to be. This is truly my calling, given those were the policy areas that I've worked really my entire career in and the policy areas that attract me to do this work.
0: Yeah, you feel closer to the people on the ground. Did you always know you wanted to be in politics or... What inspired you to go down this road?
1: You know, I think I'm really lucky as the parent of a, a Gen Zer who is trying to find his path. I realize I think I'm really very fortunate that I understood very early the kind of work I wanted to do and for whom. That's taken me different places. I've worked for nonprofit organizations. I was staffed to the first black woman elected to the Senate, Diane Watson. And so no, I didn't always know I wanted to be elected. In fact, there were years where I thought, oh. I'm a great number two. I am a solid number two to be behind the scenes, getting the work done, promoting the elected, but getting the work done. I had a moment. I was the leader of the largest child development agency in the country at the time, Crystal Stairs, facilitating child care to tens of thousands of black and brown and poor children a day. And I was sitting in a budget hearing in the assembly when the legislature was debating cutting a billion dollars out of child care out of California. And I knew the impact that would have on working families and working mothers. Without childcare, we can't go to work. Wherever you are on the socioeconomic spectrum, you just can't go to work if your child's not safe and happy and well cared for and in a nurturing environment. And I sat there in that budget hearing and got mad enough to decide to run for office because when I looked at the three men who were on that budget subcommittee, who had the power to make that decision none of whom were representing LA County, they're from other parts of the state. I understood that there was a missing perspective and voice and thought I can't keep pointing the finger and encouraging other women to run when I know that I've got the ordinary life experience and the professional expertise to bring a lens and represent an underrepresented, sometimes undervalued community. And so I often say to people, I lost my mind, took a 50% pay cut, No pension, had to figure out how to, you know, raise my son and live in two cities, Sacramento Monday through Thursday, back in the district Friday through Sunday, and decided to run for office.
0: Were you confident growing up when you were like in the high school? Were you a confident person or did you get confidence the more, you know, hurdles you tackled in one?
1: No, I don't think there's anybody who's confident in high school. There are just some people who fake it better than others, you know. Right. Even the jock and the cheer squad, they're faking it. We know that now looking back. No, I am six feet tall and have been this height since seventh grade. (laughs) So, you know, I spent a whole bunch of time cloaking. I never slouched because my father said, don't, don't do that.
0: What did your parents do when you were growing up?
1: My parents met as eligibility workers working for L.A. County in the 50s. So the fact that I am back here just gives me a great deep sense of pride. My mother left social work, went into corrections, and was a prison warden when I was in high school. So I'm six feet tall. I'm not athletic. I'm built like a brick house, which made me more uncomfortable because I just couldn't handle all that hits and swagger. It was too much. I didn't like the attention it drew. And your mom was a prison warden, and you're trying to date, and you're the tallest person in high school. So do you think I was confident? No. <laughs> <laughs> But they poured into me. Dad said, don't slouch. I wore a size 12 shoe. I wanted to be in the tall flags. You had to wear those white go-go boots. And Sears and Roebuck stopped at a size 10. So my parents, supporting me and wanting to be in the tall flags, did a nationwide search to find white go-go boots (laughs) in a size 12 so I could participate. And my dad would say, one day, this height is going to pay off for you. Just relax. And so my mother T. she was watching me on the assembly one night and it was a late night session. I'm sitting at my desk. There was a vote on an issue that was very close and I was abstaining from the vote. And one by one, these male colleagues came over to my desk. They've trying to convince me. And I'm like, I'm not going up on the vote. I'm not, da, da, da. And, you know, and you're seated. Men are kind of surrounding you. So after a while, I kind of looked up. And so I stood up. And my mom called me that night and she said, I watched you unfold <laughs> and they just kind of peeled away. And so I have found the power in my stature. That's really perceived by other people. Because, you know, Barbara Boxer is a badass with her, you know, five foot one cell, But it really comes from within. But I think people perceive my stature as evoking power. And so I use that. I think that I would be the same person if I were five feet versus six feet. Because it really is your individual agency and sense of purpose, and so no, that came with age. I have a wonderful side hustle that I love that free, not really a side hustle—but I'm the legislator in residence at Mount Saint Mary's University, all women's college here in Los Angeles. And I had the bright idea and went to the president, and she came up with the wonderful title, legislator in residence. But the point is proximity—that I'm on campus maybe four or five times during the academic year, and it's giving the young women proximity to a woman leader. And these are the kinds of things I talk about. No, you don't have all the answers now, but if you just trust me, the older you get, the more life experience you have, the more jobs you have, the more relationships you have, all of that feeds into you becoming who you are. I chose to lock at 40. It was my 40th birthday, really gift to myself because it was an acknowledgement. I knew that it would be perceived as others, as a perhaps political statement, and I was comfortable and ready for that. And so aging and the pile on of those life experiences is what gives me the confidence, I think, that you and others see that I care. And so as high school students, absolutely not. But I had women around me. My mother was just brilliant and a woman ahead of her time. And the women that surrounded her, who therefore became my community, I remember my principal in elementary school, Mrs. King, who was tall and just her physical stature. She would glide across the campus. It looked to us like she was floating. We were scared scared of her because she didn't take any masks. But I also remember thinking, when I think back to her, she is the personification of elegant to me, just in the way she carried herself. And so I think it's those images that have all poured into me throughout the course of my life. And we all have examples of that. You doing this podcast, as you talked about your commitment to young women, you know, you will have no idea the impact you will have on some young woman that you may never know. But all of those life experiences make us who we are. So no, I don't think there is a confident person in any high school in America. There are just some people who fake it better than others.
0: I always talk about positivity and the power of positivity. And I think there's a couple of jobs where it really makes a huge difference. I mean, I think it makes a difference across all walks of life and all careers but specifically politics. I mean, there's just so much you're up against. Who inspires you? You know, obviously you have days where you feel like you've had enough and you need a little more gas to keep going. What do you do? And who do you go to? And do you sing? Do you dance? Do you listen to
1: music? So I'm sorry you can't see my office, but ironically, I have three artistic representations of Shirley Chisholm in my office. Oh, I wish I could see them. I'm going to have somebody come and bring it to me so I can show it to you. So folks have started to gift me these images of Shirley Chisholm, whose 1972 presidential slogan was unbought and unbossed. And so to think in 1972, you know, that was her slogan. This the former mayor of Culver City and her husband, found this for me. It's an original picture of Shirley Chisholm. You know, She was a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus. So that's an original black and white picture that literally looked like some newspaper was marking up to use. So that hangs in my office. And then my former life director in Sacramento, hey, Bridget, gave me this one. Amazing. The clothes were so good, weren't they? Yeah, right. Weren't they beautiful? They're fantastic.
0: Every picture of Shirley Chisholm. I mean, yeah. she was just laced all the time. So
1: between Shirley Chisholm, between Fannie Lou Hamer, who you know, third and fourth grade education stood on the floor of the Democratic National Convention and declared her right to be there, and the right of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, their right to be there, for Lyndon Johnson to schedule a unscheduled press conference because he wanted to preempt her image being on TV. And so they cut her speech short because Lyndon Johnson all of a sudden had this press conference talking about nothing because they didn't want the power of this Black woman with third grade education to go over the national airways. You know, her declaration that she was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think about Biddy Mason, who owned most of downtown Los Angeles, you know, as a former slave brought to California by her slave owner. And when she found out that because he couldn't make a go of it business-wise, was intending to go back to Texas, fought for her right to stay here. Because if she'd gone back into Texas, even though California was not a slave state, she was still considered his property. That they went back to Texas, she would lose any rights. And the fact that she was able to defend herself and a court declared her right to stay in California, where she then became a nurse midwife and bought property and owned most of downtown LA and helped start the first African-American Methodist church and gave them the property for fame in, in LA. When I think about those women, you know, Bruce Beach, you may have read about Bruce Beach. Yeah,
0: I just read that article, Newsome again. Good for him. And Jamel Hill, I've had some conversations with her. We've talked about that story. That's an incredible story, Bruce's
1: Beach. So to think that there was a Black man and woman, husband and wife, Charles and Willa Bruce, who had the resources and the vision and the fortitude to buy beachfront property over 100 years ago in Manhattan Beach and to build on it alive. Because, you know, Black people couldn't go to the beach. <laughs> and so there were two places in this area, the Inkwell in Venice and Bruce's Beach. And, you know, there's an Inkwell in Martha's Vineyard as well. Those are people where Black people could go to the beach. That they had that vision. And there were six families who bought parcels surrounding them, and they were building a haven for Black people to recreate. The notion that Black people had resources to recreate over 100 years ago is novel to some people. And when I think about that story and the fact that I'm in the position today as a city member of the County Board of Supervisors to join with my colleague, Supervisor Janice Hahn, who represents Manhattan Beach, to initiate this process of true reparations to return property that was wrongfully taken from them through imminent domain because the Manhattan Beach City Council decided so, that's what feeds me the notion that for Willa and Charles, that over 100 years later, there would be a black girl on the LA County Board of Supervisors to cast votes to help make that happen. That's what helps me get up every morning and continue to do the work I do. And the fact that there are 2 million people who are counting on me. Those Carson residents right now are counting on me to drive county departments and county resources to bring down resolution that there are environmental injustices, there are economic injustices. There are housing and employment and educational injustices that must be right-sized and corrected. I've been afforded the opportunity by the voters, and so I'm going to stand in the gap and get it done. Thank goodness.
0: Thank you so much for your work. It's all so important. The environmental piece alone, you know, California is such a big state and anyone who's ever flown into Los Angeles, you see the oil drills (laughs) that you're speaking of. You fly right over them. And when you leave the airport, you know, you most likely drive right past them. And the smell is undeniable. It just smells like oil in the air. And of course, they're only down in low-income neighborhoods. They're not drilling in Beverly Hills.
1: Ironically, they are. What? Yes, ironically, they are. In the middle of Beverly Hills High School, there is an oil well. Stop it. However, you don't know it because there's a building built around it. It is right off the football field. I think it has a mural or something on it. So, you know, L.A., there's oil wells all over in L.A. The issue is safety, how we cap old oil wells, you know, remediation. The issue is I appreciate that these, you know, communities were probably built up around oil wells. But how do we cap old oil wells and what do we do to remediate the land to make it safe for everybody? That's the issue of environmental justice that we're fighting for.
0: Doesn't the oil spill into the water and the dirt?
1: That's the issue around hydraulic fracturing. You know, we're in a drought and they're using water with unidentified chemicals because they're protected. We don't have the right to know what all those chemicals are, even though we fought that at the legislature. You know, they're trying to dig deeper. You know, those oil wells have been around forever. So to get oil, they're having to go deeper into the core of earth. And so it's the process by which they do that that causes great concern. You know, to inject with high force water and chemicals to penetrate the soil, to get deeper, to access that oil is what people have real cause for. We issued studies and made requests around questioning the safety. You know, there are a group of people who firmly believe that it's ridiculous to use those drilling processes in areas that are earthquake prone. You know, there are earthquake faults all through LA County. There are those who believe there was a dam in Baldwin Hills in the early 60s, and it was a famous dam break where many houses throughout Baldwin Hills were wiped out and life was lost. And people believe that it had a lot to do with that oil drilling that made the foundation unstable. I have constituents in the Baldwin Hills area. You know, Baldwin Hills, those are multi million dollar homes, beautiful homes with incredible views of all over Los Angeles and the ocean. And they will show you cracks in their foundation of their homes that they believe are directly related to oil drilling and hydraulic fracking in that oil field. And so it really is, as we talk about a green economy, as we transition our own use, we are moving away from fossil fuels. And those companies are going to have to figure out how to keep up. We have to help transition that workforce. But from my perspective, I represent people who live eighth of a mile quarter mile, half a mile from active oil drilling sites. And fundamentally, their health must be a priority. Health must be a priority over the profits for individual companies. That's been my argument. And, you know, L.A. County has really been on the forefront of helping to guide the conversation about that transition.
0: Yeah. I mean, globally, we have to move faster. We must. I feel like, you know, climate change and fossil fuel dependency is like the pandemic, right? People can't really see it. And they don't necessarily equate hurricanes or droughts. People will say, oh, there's been droughts forever. And, oh, there's been hurricanes forever. And, oh, it always snowed in July. It's like they can't really see it. So it's just easier to say it's not true or it doesn't exist.
1: And we're experiencing directly right now, this case in Carson with the um, hydrogen sulfide, where because of the drought, this channel doesn't have enough water to flush for Mother Nature to do what she does in terms of water moving to not allow algae to build up, which has created this noxious odor that's making thousands of people like ill. I mean, that's a classic example of a direct impact the drought is having.
0: Is there any way to bring like seawater to flush it?
1: So the engineers, public works, they all have been putting, wrapping their heads around what to do. Do they add chemical to the channel to break up the algae? Do they flush it? How do they flush it? Where do they start the flushing process? Those are the conversations. When you ask me at the top of the show, how do you spend your day? Those are the conversations my team and I have been involved in with these departments really almost around the clock for the last week.
0: It's really interesting, though, because, you know, the actor in me, I love learning new things. Right. I love like hearing stories and hearing history. So that part of the job, I would love that. I mean, as disparaging and, you know, heartbreaking as some of the information you have to learn is, it's still interesting. Like who thought you'd get an engineering lesson? Exactly. <laughs> but that's what keeps your job interesting. Right. And fun. that's
1: what keeps my job interesting, as well as needing to make a decision and leading. There was a point in time when one of the department heads said, well, you know, the floor of the challenge federal government, da, 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 da. and I said, we're not waiting for approval. We have to move. And so it's figuring out which applies to whatever sector you choose to lead in, taking the information you have available and having the courage to lead and make a decision.
0: Right. How do you feel like California is doing as a whole? Like when you grew up here, how do you see the California that you grew up in and the California now?
1: That is a great question. And I think it's a mixed bag. I grew up and went to public schools here in LA, remembering when we had bad air days and you'd come to school and you'd look on the board to see if it was like green or red to figure out if you got to go outside for recess. You know, I remember smog so thick that we couldn't go out and play. Because of the environmental standards that California has put in place for itself, we don't have those. My son went to public schools here. He didn't know about small days and he's asthmatic. So that was really important. So those public policy decisions that elected leaders had the courage to play, you know, against great odds, against great industry, have led to us no longer having bad air days where kids literally can't go outside and play. That's the good part. The downside is African-American home ownership is at the lowest rate today in 2021 than it was back when the ordinances were still on the books that literally, under the law, limited geographic areas where Black people could buy homes.
0: Now, why is that? And how do we fix it? Twofold question.
1: Wages haven't kept up with inflation, the banking industry, their redlining strategies where If it's a certain geographic area, they charge a higher interest rate on loans. Their policies about who they give loans to. Gentrification. That's the big four-letter word in my community where, you know, Miss Jones, who bought a home in the Merck Park or Baldwin Hills 40 years ago for under $20,000, she could do that as a postal worker or a teacher or a social worker, now ready to retire. That home is now worth north of a million dollars. And who's in a position to buy that from her? And that developers are coming in, buying those properties, flipping them, and increasing the value and what they can sell it for at such a rate that Black people can't afford it. And so it's a multi-tier issue that's born primarily on economics.
0: Yeah, I don't understand why there's so much money for development here and no money for unhoused people no money for solutions, even from the developers. Is it crazy to say, make the developers pay? If you want to put up a 60-story building, high-rent luxury apartments, sure, you can do that, but you also have to build us a building for low income. Does that sound crazy?
1: It does not sound crazy. And government does that largely. And I am not the developer, nor am I here to defend them. But let me just tell you what they will say, what I've heard that they will say, that they will say that construction costs, land costs in LA County is ridiculous. Labor costs are high because the cost of living is high. And so organized labor has done what they're supposed to do to demand fair livable wage for their workers and supplies. You know, the morning news showed 60 Ships waiting to get into the LA Long Beach Harbor that all of our Christmas gifts are on there. And so it's going to be a situation. The supply chain is really challenged thanks to COVID and it's still continuing on. So cost of land, labor, cost of supplies drive the cost of construction per unit. And so a developer is a business person and they are in to make a profit. We get that. And so their argument is their cost to build per unit drives what they sell that unit for or what they rent that unit for, government comes in and says, okay, if you've asked us for any kind of break, any kind of subsidy, which government often does because we need construction. LA County alone is 500,000 housing units short of what we need for our population. So we need people to build. And if we give them whatever tax credit, whatever kind of break, we do that in exchange for, and therefore, you must have x number or x percent of affordable or low-income units in this building. The challenge is it's too few. So, if you build a hundred-unit building, we need more than five percent of those units or ten percent of those units to be affordable. So, it's that calculation. It's that push and pull where developers are like, "It's got to pencil out for me." And so, how do we, as government or any entity, drive down the costs of labor? Land costs and supplies. That's a delicate balancing act. So the way we've done it is then we get involved. So if we can cut your land costs, like we give you public land, then what do we get? Or if we get in the market as the county or the city and become developers and build ourselves, how do we reduce the cost? So there's all kinds of ways to attempt to address the situation. When we talk about our unhoused, it's beyond bricks and mortar. When I talk to the women at the Downtown Women's Center or the unsheltered who are living in RVs sprinkled throughout my district, it's a variety of issues that led them to be there. So many, unfortunately, have been housed and lose the housing. It's one crisis. It's one job loss. It's one domestic violence incident. It's one incarceration. You go to jail. You're poor. You get a parking ticket. You can't pay it. The fees compound. The longer you wait, the higher it is, the less likely you are to be able to afford it. Then they boot your car or they impound your car. Now you can't get to work. You're taking the bus. It takes two buses. Because of COVID, we reduced the bus routes. Now you lose your job. You see what I'm saying? How one act can lead to a series of events that good, well-meaning, hardworking people, it gets beyond their control. You have a mental health issue. There are some people who are going to need support to manage their lives. So it's not just us building the housing, but to include the wraparound supportive services to help people stay housed. That's the role government plays. That's the role the county plays and is good at to make sure those permanent supportive housing developments have social workers and outreach workers and health workers to help people who need support who are suffering from mental illness or substance abuse, excessive use, manage their lives well enough to be able to stay housed. Those are the issues. And where people, I think, who talk about, we have a distrust of government. We hear that a lot around the vaccines. I don't trust government. I think people don't understand the work government really does.
0: Well, that's precisely why your being on this show is so important today, because we want to talk about this at a just very conversational level and let people know what you do on a daily basis and hear from the people who are doing the work. I think, you know, without a strong middle class, no town, no city, no state, no country can really thrive. The middle class is really essential to all of it. The hardworking people, we have to be able to have those people afford to live near where they work. In the film and TV industry, most of our crew typically live at least an hour away because they can't afford to live close to where the studios are. And that, you know, leads to all sorts of problems, which, you know, we're going to maybe see a strike happen. Uh, We'll see what happens with that. But it's the fact that people can't afford to live near where they work. Unfortunately, we've gotten further away from that, and there isn't a strong middle class. And I think that the County Board of Supervisors, an all-women-led team, and the work that you do, Holly Mitchell, is so important. And I thank you so much for your time today to give us a window into what it looks like to lead a life of service. I really appreciate you being here.
1: It has been my absolute honor. I'll just say very quickly, you know, You talked about the Crown Act. Another piece of legislation I'm very proud of as having been a state legislator was to carry the kind of third iteration of the film tax credit, because not only did I hear from people in the industry in terms of their inability to live close to work, but because we were losing production to other states, that people weren't able to be home. They were having to go to Georgia, New Mexico, Canada. And so I was proud to stand with organized labor in your industry to bring the next iteration of the film tax credit to California so people could stay in California and live out their dream by working in the creative sector. Thank you so much for today's opportunity. It's important that we find spaces to have these conversations about what kind of L.A. County in California we all want to build collectively that we want to grow old in with dignity and raise our children so they can thrive. Thank you so much. I'm fangirling because I've watched you your entire career. So thank you for this opportunity.
0: I really appreciate it. And I loved our conversation. And it's so important that women and all young people see what you can do. You know, if you just put one foot in front of the other, you can make change and you can be part of something bigger. So thank you so much, Holly. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.